And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. My name's Sarah. How are you doing this week, Sarah? Uh, well, I have some news for you. Oh, okay. It's episode 20. Oh, cool! We've got 20 episodes. Yeah! That's super cool. That is super cool. <laughs> what are we watching today? Today, we are watching... The Unknown. Do you do you need to look at your notes to know the title? It's it's The Unknown. Oh, that's the title. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's it's from 1927. It's directed by Todd Browning and stars Lon Chaney, Norman Carey, and Joan Crawford. That's really cool. I've never heard of this movie. That's because it's The Unknown. <laughs> oh, good. This, I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> this is a good goof. This is our first film directed by Todd Browning uh, that we're seeing on the list. It's not going to be the last, that's for sure. He has made many significant contributions to horror cinema, um, probably most notably the Bela Lugosi Dracula. So he was born in 1880 as Charles Albert Browning Jr., uh, but he ran away at 16 to join the circus, changing his name to Todd. He worked as a carnival barker, as a clown, as an actor, a magician, a dancer. He did a living corpse routine where he was buried alive. He was the barker for a freak show act called The Wild Man of Borneo, uh, and he did vaudeville acts. He also directed Variety Theater in New York, which is where he met D.W. Griffith, Ah. who then brought Browning with him to California when Griffith split from Biograph. In Hollywood, Browning became an actor and appeared in 50 films from 1913 to 1919. Uh, However, he was in a car crash with a train that resulted in the death of one of his passengers, as well as the shattering of Browning's right leg and the loss of his front teeth. Uh, And that sort of ended his acting career. Oh boy, that combines like multiple fears for me. The fears of trains and the fears of like car crashes. Yeah. I guess the passenger who died was the brother of a prominent MGM editor, Margaret Booth, and she held that against Browning for the rest of his career. Oh, boy. His first feature film as a director was called Jim Bloodsoe in 1917, which was a critical success and was followed by a string of well-received films that he did for Metro Pictures. Peggy, The Will of the Wisp, Jury of Fate, Eyes of Mystery, Revenge. All of these films from this period are lost. Oh, that's too bad. He left Metro for Universal in 1918 and directed a string of Bluebird pictures for Universal that are also all lost. In 1919, he was paired with Lon Chaney for the film The Wicked Darling, a melodrama about crime and romance. Many of Browning's films from this Universal period are also lost. Uh, But his next film with Cheney would be 1920's Outside the Law, a psychologically driven crime film in which Cheney had dual roles as both the hero, a Chinese servant, and the villain, an insane gangster. Browning's last film for Universal in this period of his career would be 1923's Drifting, starring Priscilla Dean, after which Browning was fired as his alcoholism was getting out of hand following the death of his father. 
but his next film after that, Day of Faith, which he did at Goldwyn Pictures, was a big success and basically got his career back on track. When Lon Chaney moved to MGM in 1925, uh, something that we've discussed in previous episodes featuring Lon Chaney, Chaney would be reteamed with Browning for a film called The Unholy Three, which was about a trio of circus performers who are also criminals who con rich people into stealing their jewels. Uh, it was Browning's biggest success yet in his career, establishing him as a master of weird, macabre antiheroes. Uh, and it was such a success that Browning and Cheney would reteam to remake it in 1930 in sound, and it would end up being Cheney's only sound film before he died. Is that a horror movie? Will we be watching any of them? No, it's just a crime movie okay. with circus performers. Cool. Browning's next collaboration with Cheney after that would be 1926's Blackbird, which is about a thief with a dual identity that gets him embroiled in a love triangle. <laughs> uh, they would follow this up with Road to Mandalay and then 1927's The Unknown, which would be the sixth Browning-Cheney collaboration out of what would eventually be a total of ten films they did together. Cool. Uh, the Unknown combines many of the interests and themes that Browning had in his previous collaborations with Cheney, uh, notably crime, multiple identities, love triangles, revenge, the circus, and deformities. Okay. Um, and of course, this focus on circus performers and freak shows uh, and people with deformities really comes from Browning's time as a circus performer uh, when he was a teenager. Yeah. So I thought it would be useful if we learned a little bit about circus performers and freak shows and what all that was like at the turn of the century. For sure. From what you've said so far, this movie sounds like it's going to be absolutely crazy. And I'm <laughs> super excited for it. As far as uh, freak shows goes, they started popping up in the mid-16th century. Okay. So I'm going to skip a lot of that history <laughs> to kind of focus more on when they started becoming a bit more commercially viable and stable, um, specifically in the States, which is around 1840s to early 1920s. Okay. According to Robert Bogdan in a 2007 academic article, uh, he explains that the exploitation of people with mental and physical deformities was an accepted part of American culture. Okay. Which is just kind of interesting, and this is like at the height of the freak show popularity. Okay. Something that was kind of interesting to note as well with this article was uh, people with non-Western features and disabilities were shown as quote-unquote unknown and were marketed as newly discovered humans or missing links. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, I don't know much about what this movie's about, but it seemed relevant to bring up. A lot of the academic research on freak shows talks about how it allowed the public to come face-to-face -face with differences, with that's of race, ability, even gender presentation. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that research talks about how it's a reminder of the narrow box of what's considered normal. Right. However, what's also... I think important to note, because nothing is 100% good or 100% bad, uh -huh. this kind of confrontation with difference is done so in the context of entertainment. Let's laugh at these people. Right. And in this same context of, like, racism and ableism. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so really, I would argue, these shows 
reaffirm that status quo of what's considered normal. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. For sure. That being said, it's probably one of the few ways that these so-called freaks could earn a living, Mm -hmm. uh, especially at the time. Mm -hmm. Some of the most well-known examples of these freak shows or circuses is uh, the American Museum with P.T. Barnum. His American Museum was running from around 1840-ish to 1865. So not necessarily contemporary with this film, but given that Barnum is kind of the biggest example, uh, especially in the States, I thought it was important to mention. Absolutely. Yeah, P.T. Barnum is one of the most famous business owners with freak shows, but also a lot of his acts were hoaxes. Yes. (laughs) For example, there's one performer named Charles Stratton who was marketed as uh, General Tom Thumb. Yep. So Stratton, he stopped growing at around six months, um, and he started performing at five years old. And this is around 1845. He was taught to imitate Napoleon and other notable figures of history, uh, and smoked cigars, drank wine, to the amusement of the crowds. Yeah. So you can see how the theme of exploitation comes out. Mm -hmm. At the same time, Barnum paid Stratton around $150 a week. In, like, mid-1800s, like, that's... That's a lot of dough, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. And when Barnum died, he actually donated half of his life's earnings to the performers that he felt did not get paid enough. Hmm. Multiple things going on. A little from column A, a little from column B here. Exactly. In the states that's getting a bit more contemporary is uh, the rise of dime museums. Okay. In around the 1870s, and they peaked in the 1880s and 1890s, uh, with New York as its epicenter. Okay. The dime museums were like a collection of dioramas, but they had a freak show in the program as well. Okay. The guy who would take the audiences around was often considered a professor and would take the audiences through each exhibit to be like, ah, here is Monkey Man, the missing link, and here is Bearded Lady, things like that. Mm-hmm. Dime museums started to decline in the early 1900s because of the increased competition from other circuses, world fairs, carnivals, and urban amusement parks. Mm-hmm. New York has always kind of been the place for freak shows, it seems, in the States. Okay. The best example of that is Coney Island. Which would be, yeah, the the urban amusement park that you sort of just mentioned. Exactly. So the first freak show in Coney Island opened in 1880, but the boom for them really came when Samuel Gumpert's opened Lilliputia in 1904, which featured little people living in a little town. Right, Uh, yeah. (laughs) Gulliver's Travels and all that. Yeah, exactly, as per the name. So, uh, Gumpertz would add to his exhibits with other shows like the Dreamland Circus Sideshow, World Circus Freak Show, and Hubert's Museum, among many others, with performers like Lionel the Lion-Faced Man, Violetta the Limbless Woman, and uh, Zip the Pinhead. So with a cultural shift to not wanting to stare at people with deformities um, and concerns over exploitation, freak shows started becoming less popular. The performers, previously able to support themselves financially, often found themselves out of work and with nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. Freak shows, like at Coney Island, they created this place where performers could be with peers and really be themselves, mm-hmm. rather than, you know, trying to make it on their own when, like, you wouldn't really get very far outside of playing to your disability, basically. Right. So kind of like what Tyrion Lannister in Game of Thrones says... Wear it like armor, and it can never be used to hurt you. Mm -hmm. 
And so even though freak shows uh, and circus shows like this started to decline in, like, around the 1940s, um, which is after this film, freak shows have never really truly ended. It shifted from being entertained by what these people are to being entertained by what these people can do. Sure, okay. And, like, you can kind of already see that with what you see of uh, these shows from the time period. Like, I'm thinking of the movie Freaks, which we will get to in, like, (laughs) uh, that's in, like, the 30s. Yeah. Where you're being entertained by someone who has no limbs rolling a cigarette and lighting it himself. Mm -hmm. In the film, Chaney plays a character called Alonzo the Armless, who is a knife thrower who uses only his legs because he has no arms. It's an interesting role because it's kind of um, partly Chaney's traditional kind of restrictive makeup uh, routine, but also mixed with a double where Cheney bound his own arms to his torso so that you couldn't tell that he had arms, but then the actual manipulation of items with the legs is done by uh, a man named Paul Dismuki, who was an accomplished knife thrower, was actually armless, and also was a Texas petty court judge. Um, <laughs> they do these shots where it's actually his legs and Cheney's torso uh, okay. to pull off the shots. Norman Carey, who we last saw as Raoul in Phantom of the Opera, he plays Cheney's romantic rival, the circus strongman. And this is the third time that he has been Cheney's romantic rival in a movie. Uh, there was Raoul in Phantom, and he was also playing the same kind of role in Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> the film's romantic lead is played by a very young Joan Crawford. She's about 20 years old at the time this film was made. Wow. And uh, she, she had quite a life in those first 20 years. Let's put it that way. She was born Lucille Faye Lesseur to Thomas Lesseur and Annabelle Johnson. Her father abandoned the family a few months before she was born, and her mother remarried to Henry J. Cassin, who ran vaudeville acts out of the Ramsey Opera House in Lawton, Oklahoma. Uh, She enjoyed watching the vaudeville acts growing up and desired to be a dancer, uh, and began going by the name Billy, which was her preferred nickname. Cassin, whom she believed was her father, began sexually abusing her at the age of 11. Um, eventually he got accused of embezzlement and was blacklisted from town and Casson separated from Billy's mother, uh, Annabelle. Around 1922, Billy began dancing in traveling reviews as a chorus girl. And from there she was noticed and began appearing on Broadway in 1924 as a chorus girl dancer. Uh, she was spotted by an agent and screen tested for MGM who offered her a contract. Uh, She managed to pay for her travel to Hollywood by appearing in stag films. She appeared in a lot of minor roles throughout 1925, like real minor stuff, uh, and actually body doubled a few times for Norma Shearer, who was MGM's top actress at the time, and also the wife of Irving Thalberg, the studio's head of production. Billy considered Norma Shearer her professional nemesis, and like someone she needed to, like, take down uh, and, and, like, defeat in popularity, but she kind of blamed Shearer's success on the fact that she was sleeping with the boss. MGM's publicity department hated her name, Lucille Lesseur, because they thought it reminded people of sewers, 
So they held a film fan magazine contest to choose her a new name. She ended up with Joan Crawford, which she utterly despised. Uh, She kept insisting that people pronounce the first name as Joanne, which never took off. People always just said Joan, and she hated the last name because she thought it sounded like crawfish. But that was what she was stuck with for the rest of her life. Frustrated by what she saw as sort of a lack of support from the studio in favor of Norma Shearer, Crawford began aggressively appearing at Hollywood parties and making uh, impressions on directors with her dancing skills. Now, this is 1925, so she is 19 years old at this point, and she's (laughs) angry that Norma Shearer is getting better roles than her, and she's only ever appeared in background roles in movies. Yeah. But, as one MGM executive put it, nobody made Joan Crawford a star. Joan Crawford made Joan Crawford a star, uh, which refers to this period where she was just basically going to social events and making impressions on people so they would remember her. This ended up paying off, and she ended up getting more visible roles that made more of an impression on audiences. Throughout 1926, uh, she began becoming one of MGM's rising stars, appearing in more romantic leads. By 1927, she was sort of rising through the ranks of the um, star system, and she was cast in The Unknown. Crawford would later say that on the set of The Unknown, Lon Chaney taught her more about acting than anyone else in her entire acting career. Quote, I became aware for the first time of the difference between standing in front of a camera and acting. That's great. Yeah. And it's also like, hey, yeah, maybe the reason you weren't getting such good parts before was you didn't know how to act. (laughs) Uh, Of course, Joan Crawford would go on to become, like, a very big deal Hollywood star. She would go on to become Joan Crawford. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) The Unknown was considered disturbing and grotesque by MGM executives upon its completion. And they had their head editor cut 13 minutes out of it before release, which brought its running time down to just 50 minutes. Wow. It's possibly worth saying that MGM's top editor was also the wife of the guy who died in the car crash that Todd Browning got into. Contemporary critics, however, were also very unkind to the film. The New York Evening Post said, quote, A visit to a dissection would be as pleasant and more instructive. And the New York Times called it gruesome and shocking. I mean, it's a horror movie, right? So <laughs> Yeah, but like, <laughs> let's think about the American horror movies we've seen up yeah. to this point, right? In the context of the American horror movie, if it doesn't have comic relief in it, it's gruesome and shocking. Yeah. After its release, uh, the film was believed to be lost for many, many years, until a copy was found at the Cinémathèque Française in 1968. The delay in finding the print was due to the fact that the archive had hundreds of film cans marked unknown. (laughs) Oh boy, that's why you name your films very specific things. (laughs) So the film has been released by Warner Home Video as part of their TCM Archives series in a Lon Chaney box set with Ace of Hearts and Laugh Clown Laugh. Uh, Unfortunately, this set is out of print right now and is very hard to find. 
and there is yet to be a digital streaming release, so we will be unable to put this particular film on the Scream Scene playlist. That's too bad, but uh, we'll still be watching the film, so you'll hear a brief musical interlude, and we will be right back. See you on the other side, Creatures of the Night. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Unknown from 1927, starring Lon Chaney and Joan Crawford. Ben, uh, is this even a horror film? Yeah, I feel like we're going to have to talk about that Yeah. a little later, for sure. It's quite... It's definitely going to be... It's it's messed up. And, like, I enjoyed it. It's it's weird. Yeah. It's, it's disturbing. Yep. Yeah, it's messed up. But... <laughs> I don't know if that really makes it a horror movie. We'll, we'll have to talk about that in depth a little bit down the line here. So let's do a plot summary. Okay. Our story is set in Madrid, and we open with this circus. And one of the acts of this circus is this guy, Alonzo the Armless. And he's got like a knife throwing act where he throws knives with his feet at this girl, Nanan. She's the daughter of the circus owner. There's also another act, Malabar the Mighty. Uh, he's a strong man. So Alonzo is Lon Chaney. Uh, Nanan is Joan Crawford. And Norman Carey plays Malabar. So the whole deal is that Alonzo is in love with Nanan, and Malabar is in love with Nanan. So there's sort of a central love triangle going on. But Nanan has this thing where she's uh, terrified of being touched by men because they've been pawing at her her whole life. And she's just developed a complex about it. Alonzo has like a very interesting strategy for getting Nanan to love him, which is basically to encourage this fear of men touching her and simultaneously encourage Malabar to, like, go after her. Yeah. So that Malabar will keep trying to touch her, and she'll keep being afraid of Malabar and be disgusted by his handsiness and, like, push him away. Assumedly, she'll realize that Alonzo has no hands and go to Alonzo. But there's, uh, there's an interesting twist in, in all of this, uh, which is that Alonzo does have arms, and when he's alone with his best friend Kojo, who is a little person, he'll take off this, like, straight jacket kind of like thing. It's like a girdle. Yeah, it's like a girdle that he wears around his torso to bind his arms to him. Uh, and he's got arms. So why the elaborate deception? Well, it turns out that Alonzo and Kojo are like criminals who've committed many robberies. And Alonzo actually does have a deformity. It's just not the one he pretends to have. He's got double thumbs, which is like pretty noticeable. So, so that the cops can't track him down, he's adopted this whole armless routine. He gets into a tussle with the owner of the circus over his attentions on the circus owner's daughter and ends up just straight murdering the circus owner by strangling him, which, you know, is a pretty good crime for him because he's supposedly armless, so no <laughs> one will ever suspect him. But Nanan gets a glimpse out of uh, her trailer window of the guy strangling her dad. She doesn't spot the face, she just sees that he's got the double thumbs. 
So the cops come looking around. Obviously, there's no suspicion on Alonzo because he doesn't have arms. So that all kind of gets forgotten. And things kind of progress a bit with Alonzo's plan to make Nanan kind of hate Malabar and love him. And it gets to the point where Alonzo thinks things are going pretty good between him and Nanan. And that's when his buddy uh, Kojo reminds him, like, okay, sure, but, like, what are you going to do when you guys get married? Like, what's the plan? Because she's going to notice that you have arms, dude. And Alonzo's like, yeah, no big deal. Like, she'll forgive me. Like, I'll just explain it and it'll be fine. And then Kojo's like, yeah, but, dude, you've got, like, double thumbs. And she saw someone with double thumbs strangle her dad. Like, that's not going to work out for you. (laughs) Uh, So Alonzo's like, oh, shit, good point. So he blackmails a surgeon who he's got some dirt on from the surgeon's past that we never really learn about. Yeah. To surgically remove his arms, uh, which is pretty extreme. But by this point... But he's willing to do anything for her love. Yes. And also by this point, like, he's gotten so good at faking being armless and using his feet for everything. Like, he, he throws the knives with his feet, he opens doors with his feet, he rolls and smokes cigarettes with his feet. Like, he's gotten good enough with his feet that, like, in MBD to lose the arms at this point. Unfortunately, like, this whole process of, like, getting his arms surgically removed and then, like, the convalescence after that takes several weeks. And during that time, Nanan and Malabar kind of get closer together. She overcomes her fear of being held by men, uh, which allows her to fall in love with Malabar. So by the time Alonzo comes back, now actually armless, having gone through this whole process, he discovers that... Nanan and Malabar are engaged, and he cut his arms off for nothing, basically. Yeah. He doesn't react well to this news. He discovers that Nanan and Malabar have, like, a new act where Malabar's gonna, like, basically bind his arms to two horses that will run in opposite directions on treadmills on a stage, and then he'll be, like, standing there between them, like, grr, I'm strong. The audience can't see that there's treadmills. Yeah, yeah. So, so it just looks, looks like he's holding the horses back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Alonzo kind of attends the show and stops the treadmills so that then all of a sudden, like, they're actually pulling away from Malabar and his arms will be ripped off. Poetic justice. But... Nanan, in an attempt to, like, stop the horses, like, gets down from her perch and, like, runs down to, like, stand in front of them to get them to stop. And Alonzo's like, no, like, you know, my love, and so on. And so he dives in and pushes her out of the way of the horses and ends up getting trampled under the horses himself. So he dies, and then Nanan and Malabar get the happy ending. Yeah, there's a few things that you glossed over. Mm -hmm. Like, it's premeditated that Alonzo stops the treadmills. Yeah, yeah, that's his plan all along, for sure. And when Nanan goes to get off the podium to stop the horses, uh, Alonzo has already started threatening people with throwing knives at them. Yeah. uh, Because they start to approach him to get him to, like, move off the lever, and he threatens to throw one at Nanan to stop her from going off the podium so it's, it's kind of a, more of a descent into madness there. Mm-hmm. And he's, yeah, and he's revealed to be the villain to everyone kind of openly, so. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the plot. 
Yeah, it's a 50-minute movie. It's pretty short. I did look up what was cut, because I mentioned before the break that, like, 13 minutes got cut out of this movie. Yeah. So there's some initial kind of scene-setting scenes that got cut that aren't a big deal. Like, at one point, Alonzo's talking about, oh, let's go talk to the landlady or something, and she had, like, a scene that got cut. Like, whatever, no harm, no foul. Yeah. The big cut is after the surgery, uh, Alonzo kills the surgeon and Kojo so that they won't be witnesses. Which is why you don't see Kojo for the rest of the movie. And it's also why, like, there's a bit after the surgery when he's talking to Nanan again. And she's like, oh, Kojo's the one you love best, right? And he says, well, no, not the best. Because he loves Nanan the most. But there's some extra added poignancy to that. Because he's actually murdered Kojo by that point. That makes a bit more sense why Kojo just disappears. Mm -hmm. He goes up to look for the landlady and never comes back. This movie... I I was intrigued when we had Nanan's fear of men's hands and mm-hmm. things like that, and I appreciated that there was no explanation given, that it was just like, you know, that's just the case, we don't need to go into, like, why. Yeah. Because a lot of movies like to do that, or at least modern movies like to do that. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, implicit stuff in her backstory, but the movie doesn't go into it. It just talks about that all her life men have been pawing at her to the point where she's become resentful and fearful of men's hands. And that's all you really need. And I would expect that any woman in the audience could find that relatable on some level, I think. Yes. And I I wasn't sure about Lon Chaney's character basically, like, relationship zoning her, right? Like, she sees him as a friend, mm-hmm. and he's wanting more, but explicitly wanting to own her. Y- yeah, for sure. Yeah. Chaney's character in this movie is very interesting. He gives a, a really good performance, it mm-hmm. should be noted. Like, it's probably my favorite Chaney performance we've seen on the show so far. Like Even with Phantom? Yeah, I think this is a better performance than Phantom. I mean, Phantom, he's acting past a lot of makeup, for sure. And the mask itself. And the mask and stuff. And here, it's more like his own face. Like, he's got some facial makeup going on here, too. But I think there's more layers and more notes to his performance here than in Phantom. Phantom was pretty maniacal <laughs> uh, to a greater degree. The thing about the character of Alonzo that interested me watching this movie is how often and subtly he switches from sympathetic to villainous. Like, there are plenty of times in the movie where you feel sorry for him and where you feel sympathy for him, seeing the lengths that he's willing to go to do all these things, and then, like, it's all for nothing. But the movie also doesn't allow him to be a straight, sympathetic character because they they do, like, make it clear that, like, his attitudes towards Nanan are pretty bad, where it's just he wants to own her as like a possession. He's a he's a robber, he's a thief, he's a criminal, he's a murderer. He's not a nice dude. He's a, a quite a nasty fellow. So those those layers and the way that Cheney's able to kind of deftly weave in between kind of being sympathetic and being like really horrific make that a very interesting performance in my eyes. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's Cheney's performance that makes this movie and makes it get put into these horror genres. Mm. Because there were so many parts of this film that, as I I looked up how it was marketed, Mm -hmm. like what genre it was saying. And yeah, it was listed under horror, but on the posters it said a circus romance. Yeah, And I I feel like that accurately describes (laughs) what Browning's interest in this movie is. I'm inclined to say that this is not a horror film. Yeah. Because I couldn't identify 
you know, any attempts at, at scaring the audience or, or anything like that, I would call this a melodrama. Yeah. Like, to me, that's what this is, is it's melodrama. I think that where it gets lumped in with horror is because I think it is, you know, you do have Todd Browning, you've got Lon Chaney, you've got this weird kind of semi-deformed character, you've got these unpleasant incidents throughout, and uh, and also plot structure-wise, it's very similar to Phantom and to Hunchback of Notre Dame, even, where Lon Chaney's a deformed character, Norman Carey's the handsome character, <laughs> and there's a woman kind of in between them. I don't think Hunchback of Notre Dame is horror at all. That's why we didn't cover it on this list. I sort of consider that to be historical romantic melodrama. Yeah. Uh, Phantom certainly is a melodrama, but because the Phantom character himself is villainous and because of the like ghost elements and because of the style of that movie, it pushes it more towards horror. I think this is romantic melodrama as well. I think, yeah, I would, I would call this a melodrama. The only times that I could feel it inching towards being a horror film and the only times that I could really feel dread mm. while watching this was really only two, maybe three times. Mm-hmm. And it was all due to Cheney's performance. Absolutely. I think the example that's clearest for this is when Alonso has come back after getting his arms amputated and Nanan and Malabar are showing him their new act with the horses in the treadmill. And you see in Cheney's performance that Alonzo himself is putting things together of, like, Malabar's arms will be strapped to the horses. He won't even be able to let go. Mm-hmm. And, like, this is how the treadmill stops. And, like, you see it coming. You see the wheels turning in his head. But then the film somehow made me lose the feeling of dread when they had the title card explicitly saying that, like... Well, what happens if the treadmill stops? Like, it's like, I know what will happen if the treadmill stops. His arms will get ripped off. Mm-hmm. So, like, for some reason, like, the film itself undercut the feeling of horror that Cheney was bringing. Yeah. The other moment I really felt that kind of horror movie feel, or that feeling of dread, rather, is just the scene where he learns that Nanan and Malabar are engaged, and they all start, like, laughing in this kind of, like, friendly, like, ha-ha-ha kind of way. And he starts, like, laughing maniacally and just kind of goes nuts right in front of them. And, and yeah, it's his performance and the way he looks at things. He's sort of a character from a horror movie that's in a different movie. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. The movie itself was not taking itself as a horror movie. No. From, like, even just mise-en-scene, like, it was... It's not shot that way. Exactly. I think that Joan Crawford gives a really good performance, though, Definitely. as well. Like, I was very impressed with the the range of emotions she gives, too, because she kind of has to go between, like, a lot of different things, between flirty and afraid and repulsed and determined and in love and, and all these kind of places. So she and Chaney both give a wide range of emotional states in their performances in this movie. I think they're they're pretty evenly matched, really, which I was impressed by because, of course, this is a very early film for Joan Crawford. If you're used to the Joan Crawford, she's practically, like, unrecognizable in this film by how young she is. Mm-hmm. Seeing Joan Crawford in this, I don't think I've seen very many of her films this made me want to see her other films. She's great. I love Joan Crawford movies, but she's definitely like 
there's a, a persona that she kind of grows into eventually that is, is like, very different from this movie. Because um, the Joan Crawford that I think of is from the movie Mildred Pierce. It's this kind of middle-aged, independent, take-no-shit, bitter woman. And then you've got Norman Carey in this movie, who's just a, as one-note bland as ever. Yeah, just being Norman. Yeah. <laughs> the thing that was interesting to see for me here was, like, the critical reaction to this movie was so extreme. Yeah, we saw that with um, The Magician. Yeah, like, the thing here where the critics were saying it was shocking and gruesome, and it was so surprising to see, like, what's considered shocking and gruesome in 1927 when, like, we live in a world of saw and hostile movies, right? Yeah, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do when we get to those. Yeah, I, so I feel like that was almost worth seeing this movie for, was just to get a sense of, like, what was considered horrific in 1927 and it comes down to like this guy gets his arms amputated by choice and there's a couple shots where you can see that he has like a prosthetic makeup double thumb like yeah <laughs> well we do we do get the shot of him getting trampled by the horse right yeah there's a really impressive special effect shot where there's a split second shot of cheney getting trampled by this horse that really looks like the horse comes down on him and, and, and they must see his face react yeah yeah and they must have faked that somehow but it's pretty shocking to see in the moment for sure yeah. It's not enough to make this a horror movie. This is just a, a melodrama with some gruesome and bizarre aspects to it. And I feel like that's certainly Todd Browning's wheelhouse is, <laughs> is gruesome and bizarre, yeah. but still kind of firmly in melodrama. Kind of speaking to the arm amputation scene when he approaches the surgeon who's like demanding why he's been brought here. And we don't get any title cards saying that he wants his arms amputated. Mm. But he takes one hand, points to where his shoulder is, and just, like, moves down it. And, like, to be fair, like, the score that was with the version we watched was, like, really good. Uh, and they had, like, a sound effect there. Yeah, but, he... like, just, like, the motion. There, there were chilling moments like that. But, again, all tied to his performance and all separate from what it seemed like the movie itself wanted to do. It's intent. Yeah, for sure. Similarly to the fact that, like, this will seem like an odd comparison, but, like, no country for old men. Um, <laughs> like, Anton Chigurh, that character in that movie played by Javier Bardem, you could make him the villain of a slasher movie. Totally. But no country for old men is not a slasher movie. And, and that's sort of how I feel about Lon Chaney and the Unknown, where in a different movie, he would be at home, but... And it's not that he's not at home in the Unknown, it's just that the rest of the movie is not reinforcing what his character is doing, um, because it's trying to kind of single him out. Why do you think this movie's called The Unknown? I have no idea. It's not the name of any of the circus acts that we nope. see in the movie. I don't really know, Sarah. Uh, I mean, I don't know why the monster was called The Monster, so... Hey. But uh, I mean, like, that's, you can be like, oh, the monster was the dude all along, right? Yeah, but that's never even, like, a line <laughs> of dialogue. Like, no one in that movie's going, like, who's the monster? Oh, it was you all along. Like, that's yeah. not even a thing in that movie. Do you think it's, like, a case of trying to use the title to set the mood and do the heavy lifting of setting the mood? Well, I will say that it wasn't Todd Browning's original title for the movie. Oh, Todd Browning's preferred title for the film was Alonzo the Armless, and it got changed to The Unknown by the studio. I can see why he would want that to be his original title. I guess I can see why the studio wouldn't want something The Armless plastered <laughs> on posters all over town. <laughs> the title The Unknown makes me think that they hadn't even seen it. 
the unknown is like one step above untitled, you yeah, know, it, for it, like it, it it um yeah, it reminds me of when like you see a listing on IMDb for like an upcoming movie like Untitled Marvel Comics Project. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like Untitled Todd Brown Unknown Todd Browning movie. <laughs> it's like that's too long to put on a title card. We'll just call it unknown. Yeah. But yeah, I I don't get the title at all. Yeah. I don't know, man. If we're both feeling like it's not really a horror film, like I have an idea of where we could rank it, given Cheney's acting causing that feeling of dread, but I'm also open to the discussion of putting it on the uh, not applicable part of the list with Hexen. Sure, yeah. I, I'm uncertain about putting it on the list. We've We've made, like, exceptions for movies. There are certain movies you could argue shouldn't be on the list. Uh, there's, the Golem. There's the Golem and some of the co- the more comedic movies that we've seen. And part of the way I've justified that in my mind has been the thought that because the horror film genre doesn't really exist as a thing in America yet, these early examples can kind of skirt by on the technicality of, like, you can't penalize someone for breaking rules they don't know exist, I guess. Um, yeah. That's how I was able to justify putting, like, the bad and the monster and stuff like that on the list. Certainly, America's been figuring it out, though, like seeing films like The Magician and The Cat and the Canary. And I don't think this really... I don't think this feels like those, even. You know, this doesn't feel like the attempt, the early attempts out of America that we've been seeing. So I agree. The monster fit in mainly because of Roland West. Mm-hmm. And the magician fit in because of, like... Not just, but kind of just because of Paul Wegner. Yeah. What's been happening in the U.S. is directors stealing visual motifs from German expressionist horror films. Yeah. And then applying them to what are essentially mystery thrillers, giving them a look and a feel that makes them feel more like horror films. This doesn't have any of that feel to it. You know, we don't really see any of that horror cinematic styling. No. To any real great degree. So it really is just Cheney's performance pushing it through and giving it those moments of suspense where his character is so volatile that you don't know, like, what he might do next. Yeah. Uh, that makes him kind of scary. Yeah, I have, like, a range picked out on the list as well, but I'm I'm also kind of not sure if this ends up going on the, the non-applicable section. I'm kind of waffling between putting it on the list in a spot or making it non-applicable. So... The reason why we have... Let's take The Monster. Mm -hmm. Because that's, like, a pretty easy, comparable film. The reason The Monster's on the list is because of the intent of the director. Like, he was trying to do a horror film with the comedy. It was a trial run. Lon Chaney really did push it over to being more of a horror film. But, like, out of, like, the one or two scenes that he did that, it was still primarily a comedy with like, the window dressing of a horror film. Mm-hmm. We nailed it down based on the intent of the film. And but, also it's it's sort of influence on the look and tropes of later films that are horror films. Definitely. With Hexen, despite its look of a horror film because of its subject matter, its intent is a documentary. Mm-hmm. And so we always go back to the intent of yeah, the film. Yeah, for sure. Do we believe that Browning's Unknown is intended to scare us or intended to 
what? It's it's hard to figure out because Browning's films are so bizarre. Yeah. Like, the very premise of this film is weird, right? Like, it's definitely not the premise that you would expect from a typical Hollywood MGM film. And I think that's the abnormality that gets it lumped in with horror films. What I What I'm struggling with is I think we've identified over the course of this show, like, two primary criteria for judging these horror films. And uh, one of them has been the nature of the protagonists as survivors rather than heroes. And I think that would apply to this film Mm -hmm. if we view the protagonists as Nanon and Malabar and we view Alonzo as an antagonist. There's also a way you could read this film where Alonzo is like an anti-hero. Like, he's our protagonist, but he's doing bad things. Yeah. So, structurally, it becomes hard to judge it on that ground. The other, like, main thing that we've talked about is the idea of, like, horror movies having, like, a a central fear that they're trying to evoke or express to an audience. You know, what's what's the thing that we're meant to be afraid of that's being examined? And I can't really see it in this movie either. There's some stuff about body identity, and there's some stuff about... Boundaries. Boundaries. And there's some stuff about trust. But it just comes back to being a drama for me. Yeah. The fear is similar to what seems to be, like, the fear in the Phantom, right? Of, like, this guy who you thought Mm. you could trust actually not being trustworthy. Sure. Absolutely. Like, it's probably most similar to Phantom of the Opera of anything on the list. Yeah. Okay, well, if you put it on the list, where would you put it? Right in and around the Jekyll and Hydes that are around, like, 15, 16. Mm-hmm. Because I... We just talked about how it's not a horror movie. Right. I feel it's more of a horror movie than Avenging Conscience. Yeah. But the absolute highest I would put it is um, right around Sealed Room, which is at 13. Okay. Yeah. What's uh, your range? Very close. Um, I was thinking that it, it did a better job of building a sense of dread and terror in it than Avenging Conscience or The Golem. Mm. Uh, So I was definitely going above there. And I was looking at below the 1920 Jekyll and Hyde starring John Barrymore, but above the 1912 Jekyll and Hyde starring James Cruz. So we were pretty much right in the same place. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, I was feeling like this would split up the Jekyll and Hyde's. Yeah, that was sort of my, my feeling as well. So if we put it on the list, I think that's a good place to put it. Where I'm sitting is the fact that the golem's on this list. The golem is less of a horror movie than this. It has a monster and it has magic and it has the monster going on a rampage at the end. But like, it's not, it's like, this is scarier than the golem. Yeah. I mean, part of why the golem's on there is because it's kind of standing in for the lost first one. Mm -hmm. What makes me anxious is continuing to put films on the list because it has, like, the one horror star, you know, it has Lon Chaney. That might not be fair to where this film should actually be categorized. At the same time, I'm trying to consider what horror was considered at the time it was released. And this film definitely seems to have hit those feelings that should be hit with horror films of being disgusted a bit. So let's let's put it this way. I, I don't want to judge this against, like, European horror films because we've sort of established that they're 
ahead of America. Totally. In figuring out what these <laughs> movies should be like. Yeah. But comparing it to American horror films of this time, too. Because, like, I'm saying it's better than Avenging Conscience, but Avenging Conscience is 13 years old by the time this movie comes out. In terms of comparing it to some contemporary stuff, I mean, Phantom of the Opera, Cat in the Canary, The Bat, The Magician, The Monster. Does this feel like those movies, or does it feel like a different genre? Ironically, it feels similar to The Magician. Mm. I say ironically because Magician's kind of like a... It's American, but it was like... Made in Europe. It's like, it has American parents, but it happened to be born in Paris sure. when they were during a layover, you sure. know? Sure, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I feel it's comparable to The Magician because it has, like, those horror elements, but for the most part, if it's not a scene with Paul Wegener, like, it's shot like a romantic drama mm-hmm. until you get to the, the crazy castle. We're leaning towards putting it on the list, then? I guess so. If it is on the list, I'm comfortable with where we're looking at ranking it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly, like, a lot of movies that I've resisted even watching for the show, like movies like Hunchback of Notre Dame and The Man Who Laughs that get put on lists of silent horror films all the time that are just absolutely not horror films. Uh, Because the monster character is, like, a sympathetic romantic lead who never does anything bad and is the hero. Like, those are not horror movies. Uh, In this film, Alonzo is a threatening character, so I feel like that pushes it a little bit more over those other movies that I've chosen not to have on this show to try and dissuade people from thinking of them as horror. So I think we can allow maybe this one, but definitely skirting in in qualifications. Yeah, I think the fact that you noted how the other characters are survivors, that's definitely swaying me to having it on the list. Okay. Well, then uh, we've made our our choice after some hand-wringing about this one. (laughs) Just really barely qualifying um, onto the list at number 16, The Unknown from 1927, directed by Todd Browning. Uh, If you would like to see this list, you can find it on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. That's where you can also find the youtube playlist to watch other films like we mentioned earlier in the first half uh this film is not on our youtube playlist so you'll have to go searching on your own at our website you can send in appeals or suggestions through our ask box or you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com you can yell at us on twitter at (laughs) underscore scream scene and uh we update every wednesday you can find us on itunes And we'd love it if you could leave us a review. We would love to hear your thoughts. And reviews on iTunes are also how other folks can find the podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Uh, So next week we're jumping back to Germany for another Henrik Galeen joint. Cool. Uh, So it's uh, his other major German expressionist horror film that he directed, 1928's Al Raun. What does that translate to? Al Raun. Oh, is it like a name? It's like a name. Oh, cool. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, well... <laughs> it stars, uh... <laughs> it stars Brigitte Helm, who, uh... Why do I know that name? She was the robot in Metropolis. Sweet. Yeah. Uh, well, I look forward to watching that. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye! Bye!